Romans chapter 8, our text will be verses 31 to 37 of God's holy word. You know, this chapter continues to build more and more for the people of God, to build more encouragement, to build more assurance of God's great love, of all that he did to secure the salvation of his people. We are nearing the climax of this book. When you get to verses 38 and 39, that's really the high point of this chapter, specifically this chapter. And the apostle, as he goes through what we are going over today in verses 31 to 37, he is building on his previous statements of giving his readers, again, assurance of God's love, assurance of God's favor towards them, that he is working all things for their good, whether things of adversity, whether things of prosperity, that no uh, circumstances in life can separate them from the love of God. No circumstances in life uh, can separate them, can cause them to uh, stumble as far as in their walk with Christ because it is the Lord that is bringing us along. Even in the times of pain and in, in our circumstances, it is God who is giving us joy and confidence in Him as we know that He is for us, that He loves us, that He favors us. As Isaiah says of the ministry of Christ, in Isaiah 61, He says to comfort all who mourn, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So God works all things together for good is what he says. We can be certain of that because Paul says we know, and that's uh, the idea of knowing with certainty. All things work together for good, and they work together for good because the Spirit of God is praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf. Because of the Spirit's great love that He has for the people of God, he, he makes groanings without words, and He does so according to the will of God for the benefit of the saints. And that results in the good that Paul speaks of in verse 28, which is elaborated in verse 29, which is to be conformed to the image of the Son, who is the head of this spiritual family that we've been made part of. This is all due to God's indescribable love that He has for His people. He is for you. He favors you. He loves you. He's interceding for you. He's bringing good even out of the difficult circumstances. Last Lord's Day, we've seen how Paul reiterates for his readers of God's great love for them, not only of his present love, but his love from eternity past. He said in verse 29, as we went over last Lord's Day, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And, whom, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It takes us back to eternity past of describing for us the great love that God has for his people. For those whom he foreknew. The, and we talked about this word ginosko that is being used here as it is in uh, other passages of Scripture to denote a very deep, intimate love. And this is saying that God loved beforehand with that deep, intimate love those whom He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called at the proper time. And you notice that He says, these whom He called. It's not everyone in general whom we call. 
We call everyone to repentance. We call everyone to faith in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. But this is being very specific here. Those whom he called. And it's so specific in particular because these whom God called, these are those and these only, as the, as the rendering gives to us, these only are those whom he justified, those whom he has declared not guilty. And these whom he justified and these only, he also glorified. We talked about how these are in the past tense, that it is really a done deal. It's, it's, it's a sure promise. You look at the eternity past of God loving you before the foundation of the world. You look at the present of how God loves you as he calls you, as he, as he justifies you. You see God's love in the future that he will present to you as you are glorified in him. There is so much that the apostle is trying to bring out more and more and more to give you a security in Christ. To, to get his readers to understand you are secured in the hand of the one who called you. There is no turning back. There is no falling away. There is no losing your salvation. For the great king has called you with that divine summons and you answered and you are forever preserved in his hand. And now the apostle is going to continue that. He's going to continue to build upon that, to encourage his readers, to strengthen them even more so that they are forever secured in the hand of God through the work of Christ. And he drives this point home by asking seven questions in our text this morning. One is really a question of just to bring a summary to everything. And then you have six rhetorical questions thereafter. And these questions, they, they are meant to call the readers uh, to once again consider what God has done in fully securing them to Christ. And in these areas that he is going to cover, he covers every aspect of life. When you have a doubt and you wonder, well, am I really in the faith? Is God really, is he, does he still love me? You know, whatever doubts that may come to your mind, these particular passages here help us to be secured in the answer. That you are forever held in the hand of God. You will never be lost, dear Christian. You will never fall away. And, and this passage here speaks to that. Because we all have times in which we, we wonder, maybe. Because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, circumstances that we have endured before, does God really love me? This is what I said, this is what I did because of my sin that is ever before me. Is God... Has God abandoned me? Is God done with me? Have I, have I went too far? And what you find in these verses is that for you who are truly in Christ, there is nothing that will make Christ to turn away from you or for you to turn away from him. And we're going to see that in this passage. So if you would and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Verses 31 to 37 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you once again that your word is encouraging our hearts and giving us such great assurance, Father. Please keep reiterating to us that our salvation is not our doing. It is yours. Your word says, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus, meaning you. And I pray, Father, that today you will help to secure us even more so in that truth, knowing that we are preserved in your hand and none can pluck us out of your hand. So, Father, do a mighty work within our hearts this day. May our hearts forever give you thanks and praise your name for all of these wonderful truths that we are looking at today especially. Father, be glorified in your people, and we pray that you bless the preaching of your word, may it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we have these series of questions. They really cover about every part of life. If we wonder, is God for us? The answer is here. If we wonder, does God still love us? The answer is here. We wonder, have we done so much as far as sin that God still holds us in his hand? The answer is here. We have seen so much uh, within this book uh, as a whole of everything that God has done in spite of us. And that's the very thing that he has presented to his readers throughout this entire book. That you think you're self-righteous because you're trying to obey the law, you're breaking the law. You, you're, you're, you're doing everything uh, that you can in order to try to earn salvation, you're being a hypocrite. You're, you're so many different things that, that you find here in this book until he reiterates this wonderful truth when you get to chapter 3 that it is Christ. It is because of Christ you are justified in the sight of God. It is because of Christ that you are forever forgiven of all your sins. And he goes into justification by faith. And he reiterates that continually a number of different places thus far to put it in our minds. To put it in the minds of his readers, of course. But also for all the people of God to get it through your head. Your justification is not your doing. Your justification is because of another. Your justification is because of the righteousness of another. It is all in him. It is not in you. Your sanctification is a work that he does within you as well. He is continually molding you and shaping you, conforming you to the image of Christ. Yes, you suffer in this life, but guess what? God has said as well that your suffering is going to be used for your good. And guess what? 
when you don't know what to pray because of the overwhelming circumstances of your life, the Spirit is praying on your behalf and He is bringing you along in the Christian faith. You know, when you really stop to think about it, what exactly do we contribute to any of this? Well, except one theologian said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the, the sin that made it necessary. We know that. But what else do you contribute to it? I mean, we can't claim any credit for believing because it was God that done it. It was God who called us. It's God who gave us faith. We can't have any credit for our justification as if any works that we did merited our justification because God says, you have no works, you have no righteousness. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we owe that to Christ as well. We can't claim anything of our sanctification as well because we can't make ourselves holy. It's not that we can check off a number of boxes and say, okay, if I do this and I do this and I do this, it's going to make me more holy. No, because it's the Spirit of God who sanctifies you, who conforms you to the image of the Son. It is not your doing. Well, all the circumstances that we find in our lives, you know, that we're trying to work through, who's bringing you through that? It's God. It's His strength that is bringing you through. We don't even know what to pray at times. So when we don't even know what to pray at times... What do we say? Oh, Lord, you know my heart. You know the depths of my soul. You know what my heart is yearning for. I don't even have the words. And the scripture affirms to us that the, scripture pray, or that the Spirit of God prays on our behalf. He intercedes on behalf of the saints. And he does so according to the will of God. And everything that the Spirit of God prays to the Father is in accordance with his will. And guess what? The Father always says yes to the Spirit. And then when we look at our salvation in its totality, God loved us from the beginning. For whatever reason, I have no idea. But he chose to. Because that's his sovereign free will to extend his love to whom he desires. He has chosen our destinies. He conforms us to the image of his son. It was he who called us, he who justifies us, he who will glorify us. What credit can we take for anything? Not even in the ministry that you do for him. You, know, you find the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 12, I labored more than all of them, meaning all the apostles, but it was not me doing it, but the grace of God in me. Paul couldn't even take credit for all the things that he was doing in service to Christ. And you think of Paul. Paul was probably the greatest of all the apostles, especially in his missionary work. At least it could be argued. And he gives all the credit back to our Lord of any good that he did. So when you consider all the things that we have read thus far, of all that God has done for his people, of all that God has done for you specifically, and extending his love and loving you even while you were ungodly, loving you while you were so undeserving, calling you to himself, and choosing to have called you to himself in eternity past. Then the question inevitably comes up in verse 31. What then do we say? What then do we say to these things? What can we say? What do we say to all these wonderful graces that our Lord has given us? No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you are now adopted into the family of God. 
and God's love is towards you. And he provides everything that is necessary to continue your life here and to continue whatever his will is for your life. What do you say to that? He has provided everything that is necessary for all your sins to be forgiven and that you should not have any doubts concerning your salvation, not because of anything that you've done. Now, we want to be careful here as far as not having any doubts of your salvation because a lot of times we are told, depending on what church we grew up in, you raise your hand during an altar call, and you come up, you pray a prayer, and somebody will say to you, I'm your witness you prayed this prayer, don't ever doubt your salvation. There's never the follow-up, are you genuinely converted? But you have somebody telling you this, don't ever doubt. That's not what we're talking about. Should we doubt our salvation? And the answer is no, we shouldn't. Because, not because of a prayer that we prayed or a card that we signed, but because our trust is in another who carried out all that was necessary. So, what objections can you bring up when you doubt? When you wonder, does God, is God for me or is He not? What objections can you bring up that haven't already been covered? He's provided everything. Everything is done. There's nothing left for you to do. You know that little saying that we find often or that people will say at times, God has done all he's going to do and the rest is up to you. That is nonsense because God has done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. The very fact that you believe and that you continue to believe is a work of God. The very fact that all of a sudden your, your affections have changed, that at once you didn't want the Lord and all of a sudden you do, that wasn't your doing. The fact that at times you worry about your own sin, knowing that you have offended a holy God, and that your heart is desire to, to repent, that's evidence of another working in you. So when you doubt, what objection can you bring up? Well, yes, I know that you died for me. Yes, I know that you loved me beforehand. Yes, I know that you called me. I know that you've justified me. I know that you promised to glorify me, but what else can you say? There's nothing to say. That's why the apostle, he says, what then shall we say to these things? What other objections can you bring up if you're doubting? We have these promises that have been given to us. We have the promise of the ministering work of the Holy Spirit continually. He is our pledge. He's our down payment. He is continually with us. He will continue to be with us. God has shown his love and devotion to his people. So much so that he goes on to ask this first rhetorical question. Well, then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who is against us? Who can be against us? When you see that everything that God has done in order to secure your salvation, it is all his doing. Who can be against you? People out here can be against you, but then the scripture has already told us that God causes all things to work together for good. Even that is part of his plan and that is part of his will and that is bringing about good for you. None can be against us. 
Because God is for us. And he has shown that he is for us. It doesn't matter how many people oppose you out here. You have the Lord with you. It was John Knox, I believe it was John Knox who said, one man with God is in the majority. Because who can stand against the Lord? He's the final say in everything. There are none that can be against us, really. Jesus says, don't fear them that can destroy the body, but not the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's about as much as an unbeliever or the unregenerate world or the persecuting world can do to you. They can kill you. They can bring pain to your life. But what does the scripture say? All things work together for good. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What can, what can an unbelieving world hold over, you, hold over you? I'm going to kill you? Oh, you're going to just send me home. Okay. Can they do anything else? No. Their mere attempts at rebellion, we read in the scripture according to Psalm 2 that God laughs at their rebellion. Why? Because none can stand against him. And if they cannot stand against him, they cannot stand against his people whom he preserves. When you think of this, this whole idea of opposition, if God is for us, no one can successfully be against us. None. No one can prevent us uh, from the greatest good that could come in our life, according to Dr. Lawson. Dr. Lawson goes on to say, even the greatest opposition that could ever come against you is only worked by God for your greater good. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, commenting on this very subject, he says, yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings. And that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. End quote. If you're being persecuted, what's Chrysostom saying? It's just working for your crowns. That's working blessing for you. So even when people are against you, they're really not. Because good is being brought about in it. He goes on to ask this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now you have him addressing the issue of perhaps opposition, of things that we may bring to our minds. Well, what about this and what about that? He's covered that already. And now he is giving us the great provision that we have in Christ. God has made provision in Christ. Do we think that because, I mean, when we're looking at this, he's, he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. God has kept the greatest promise that he has ever made, which is the giving of his son. And if he has fulfilled that promise, anything else is lesser in comparison. So like Dr. Lawson, uh, he was giving an example. It would be like 
It would be like Dr. Lawson giving both of his sons in order to keep so many other people from perishing, from dying. And then those people that are saved because of the sacrifice of his sons, they come to him one day and they knock on his door and they say, can I get a pair of socks? And he says, I didn't withhold my sons from you. Of course you're going to have a pair of socks. Think of how small that that is. And you have our Lord who has given us the greatest gift in the giving of his son for the salvation of his people. Any other promise or any other provision of any other thing that we need is lesser in comparison. And so the argument goes, of course he's going to give you everything that is necessary for you to continue your life here. For your ministry according to the will of God in your personal life. Because he gave you the son. Of course he's going to give you everything that you need. He's going to give you everything that you need daily. Why would he not? He gave his son to be delivered over. He gave him up. Jesus used that kind of language too when he was talking to the disciples in, in Luke, for example. Luke 24, that the son of man must be delivered over. Delivered over to judgment is the idea. And that's used throughout the gospels in a number of places. But when you're looking at the whole scenario of what Christ did endure, that he was given over by the Jews, or actually first given over by Judas, then given over by the Jews, and then Pilate delivered him over to be crucified because he was scared. Ultimately, it's going back to it was the Father who gave him over, who delivered him over, who delivered him over for your punishment, to take your place, to be your substitute. What else could he give? He's given the greatest, the greatest gift already. Why would he withhold anything else from you? And that's the argument. The, uh, the idea of all things, giving us all things, is referring to the totality of what his people need in order to be established in the faith, to persevere in the faith. He's given you everything. Everything that you need. And it's freely given. You know, there's a generic word for giving that is, that is used in the scripture. But this particular word is charizomai, which comes from, which is a compound word, but it comes from the Greek charis, which is grace. This is gracious giving of God. How will he not also with him graciously give all things? And that's what he's pointing to. He graciously gives you all things. And the language that Paul uses, even in Ephesians, of the things that God has given to his people and provided to his people, granted to his people. Verse 7 of chapter 1, Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The riches of his grace he has lavished on you. First, in the giving of his son. And secondly, in giving you everything that you need. Do you realize that you lack nothing? You lack nothing. You have everything that you need. Because Christ was your substitute. Christ took your place. Christ bore your sins. 
he endured the wrath of God in your place. He was the one who was delivered over that you may be justified. All things that are necessary for you to fill the will of God in your life, whatever it is, it's been given to you. All your predestined work, all your foreordained work, it's been given to you. Because the Father delivered over His Son, the greatest of His promise, and He will keep every other promise that He's made to you. For nothing was greater than the giving of the Son. So provision has been made for you. You have no opposition. Provision has been made for you. And you see a lot of what the apostle is, again, pointing out to the people of God. You are secured. Nothing can separate you. You are secured. Why do you doubt? Is there anything that God could do or say that he hasn't already that would make you not doubt? Because he's given you everything. He's done everything. What more do you need? You are secured in the hand of God. He goes on to say, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You have the question on the, 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 the subject of condemnation. And notice here, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's in the future tense. And when he says, who is he who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? Is in the present tense. And so there may be uh, the idea of covering every part of all time. There is no one on the last day who can bring a charge against God's elect. It uses the word elect. It means the chosen ones. Those whom were foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, those whom he already promised to be glorified. These are the chosen ones of God. These are the ones that he gave to the Son. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17. That's what Jesus said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come. And these are those whom the apostle has in mind here who says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? you just seen the provision that he made with the Son. He, give, he gave the Son to be delivered over to judgment in your place. He was your substitute. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. No one can stand on the day of judgment and look and point at you and say, wait a minute, you're getting ready to give this one eternal life. Let me tell you what it is that he or she did. There is no such instance. Because God says, now, for you who have called upon Christ in faith, that you are justified, declared not guilty in the sight of God, now. Your justification again, what is, it, what is it based upon? It's not based upon your own merit. It's not based upon your own works. It's based upon another. Christ is the one who lived the perfect life. Christ is the one who satisfied God's justice. Christ is the one who rose from the dead. And he's going to go over those things here in just a moment. So because of his life, his life fulfilling the righteousness of the law, his life is imputed to you as if you've done it. God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son, he declares you not guilty. 
your justification is because of another. Even if someone could stand to accuse you, Christ is the one who died for you. This is very familiar to us, and I know many of us really love this passage in Zechariah 3. Because this is what we're talking about. In Zechariah 3, beginning verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you also will govern mine house and also have charge over my courts, and I will grant you free access among, those, among these who are standing here. So you have this wonderful picture. Joshua the high priest, he's dressed in filthy garments, he's standing before the Lord. Satan is here to accuse him. And what does the Lord say? He rebukes Satan and he says to the angel, take off his filthy garments, put him on some festal robes. Some clean garments. And that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the justification of God's people. Your filthy robe has been taken off. Now you've been clothed with the righteousness of the Son. You're wearing this robe now. As I said it last week in Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. And it is Christ's righteousness so again, when it comes to your justification, it's outside of yourself. It's in another. It's in him. And so the object of your salvation, of your faith, rather, is Christ. Not, am I still wearing filthy garments? I have on clean garments because of him. I have peace with God because of him. I have been reconciled to God because of him. Everything concerning your salvation is outside of yourselves and it is in another. That's why your faith is in him. He's the object of your faith. He's the gospel. You know, when it comes to the gospel message, you're not included. It's him. Who he is, what he did, it's all him. And because of him, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, and he justified you on account of his son. Who is the one who condemns? That's in the present tense. Is there anyone that can stand against you even now, bringing a charge against you? That will have eternal consequences? No. Because God has justified you. Even now, we know we, we, know we still struggle. We know that we sin every day. We know that we come before our Lord every day asking our Lord to forgive us. But is there anything in any of the things that we have done since we have been converted that will cause us then to stumble and to lose our salvation or for the Lord to turn his back on us? And the answer is no. Because when God has saved you, he saved you in view of all the sins that you have committed, whatever commit. 
And he paid the penalty in full. He was your provision, remember? Here's why. This is the very things we've been talking about. Here's why. None can bring a charge against you on the last day. None can bring a charge against you even now. Because Christ Jesus is he who died. What is it taking you back to the very things we've been talking about? It takes us back to Christ. Why can no one condemn you? Why is it God has justified you? Because Christ died. He died. He took the punishment. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was the one who would come and bear the the iniquities of his people. He was the one who would give himself as a guilt offering that his people would be justified. He's the one who died. Yes, rather, who, who was raised because he died and he bore our penalty. He satisfied the justice of God because he was raised again. And Paul says elsewhere, he was raised for our justification because it was in the resurrection of Christ that it was his vindication that when you look at all these passages that deal with the resurrection of Christ, Christ says he lays down his life, he's able to pick it up again. Then it's attributed to the Father that the Father was the one who raised Christ. It's attributed to the Spirit that the Spirit is the one who raised Christ. So you have all three that are taking part in the resurrection of Christ, and it was his vindication that the Father accepted his sacrifice on behalf of his people. So because he, he died, because he was raised, he says, who is at the right hand of God? Because he has taken his place at the right hand of the Father to take his place on his throne, to rule and to reign. And you think about this. You think about the scriptures that describe to us of, of the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ is, again, part of his vindication, sitting at the right hand of God, having accomplished his work. And when he sits down, that is implying that there is nothing more to do. He's done it all. He sits down, and now he has his plan of ruling and reigning and putting all his enemies under his feet. Because those are the things that you find within the Scripture concerning of, of Christ and his ascension, that he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, he says, Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them. The scripture tells us, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And that goes back to the question, who can stand against you? Because Christ is the one putting all his enemies under his feet. Christ is the one ruling and reigning. Christ is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means that it doesn't matter what, el, what all happens here on, on, in the nation or in the world, wherever. It means this says God is the one who is ruling. Christ is the one who is ruling. Christ isn't in heaven pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, wondering, what are we going to do? Because look at the people down there. Look at all the kind of rebellion that they're doing. What this is implying is is that God is ruling and reigning. Christ is fulfilling his purposes, and Christ is putting all his enemies under his feet, and none can thwart his hand. That's the point. So none can stand against you. None can bring a charge against you. Because Christ is seating at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He pleads our cause before the Father. Just as when Satan is accusing Joshua, it's as if 
our Lord Jesus says, no, he's mine. She's mine. They're dressed in my robes. So because Christ is the one who died, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, and who intercedes for us, no one can bring a charge against you. And that's really covering a lot, isn't it? Can we come up with a, another alternative? Yeah, but... Mm -mm. No. That's taking care of it all. If, however, we do doubt further, he goes into this question concerning separation. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, these are rhetorical questions, and the answer is no one. No one will separate you from the love of Christ. Now, you look at these particular things that he is going to list for us. And these are things that the scripture has also told us elsewhere, like in the parable of the sower, that those who profess to know him will be carried away because of the worries of the world or they'll fall away because of tribulation and all of this. So when you're looking at these passages or these, these descriptions there in verse 35, this is affirming that those who are secured in the hand of God will never fall away because of tribulation or the worries of the world or the pressures of life or anything else. They will never be lost. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, there's nothing uh, from Christ's perspective that will ever turn him away from you because look at everything that he's done. Right? He saved you in spite of you. He saved you knowing all the things that you would do even after you were converted and yet you've been made the objects of his love. From our, from our perspective. Well, tribulation... Can tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? The idea of tribulation is, is, is the pressures of life, uh, the idea of compression or affliction, uh, distress of mind, distressing circumstances, trials. Will tribulation separate you from the love of Christ? No. The answer is no. Even the great pressures that you endure. You know, we think sometimes, well, based on what we read uh, previously in, in Matthew, when we were going through Matthew concerning the parable of the sower, the worries of the world lead people away. The tribulations of life lead them away. And yes, it does because they were never actually converted. For those that are truly converted, tribulation will never Separate them. And you know the great example. The great example is Job, right? So Job loses all his livestock. He loses all ten children. All in a day. Does he curse God and die? No. He doesn't. 
the whole conversations thereafter are trying to reconcile what exactly has happened. What Job, you're just a big sinner, and this is why this is happening. And, and Job is saying, you know, I'm being dealt unjustly here. But what, you know, again, we've talked about Job is never told why all these things happened. He, you know, the Lord gets to the end and he begins to speak back to Job and he basically tells Job, I'm God, you're not. And Job says, I'm going to put my mouth or my hand over my mouth. I'm speaking of things too great for me. I have heard of you. Now I know you. And that suffering brought Job closer, right? But when you look back at the beginning and you're looking at the beginning of, of the book of Job and you're seeing uh, this whole conversation between the Lord and Satan, we, we're able to understand what's happening here. You have the Lord who brings Job up to Satan. Satan doesn't come to the Lord and say, hey, I know this guy over here. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There are none like him in all the earth, righteous and upright, etc., etc." Satan says, give me an opportunity. I'll make him curse you. He'll curse you to your face. So then he takes his livestock. He takes his children. Job doesn't sin. Satan comes back before the Lord. Let me touch his body. And he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord says, you can. You can't take his life. Then Job is afflicted with all these boils and all of this. What, what's happening here? It's almost as if th this is not necessarily just a lesson for Job and some, some kind of an encouragement for the people of God for centuries to come to let us see the suffering of Job so we would be encouraged. But this is also a lesson maybe for Satan himself. You can't take those whom I have secured. You will never be able to take those that I have secured. And so Satan may be used in order to bring tribulation in life, perhaps distress, the, that anguish, that a severe mental or physical anguish, that pain and suffering. Uh, he goes through persecutions. People of God have been persecuted uh, throughout the centuries. They're persecuted in various places even now. Enduring famines, perhaps because of the cause of Christ or just in general, or nakedness because of the cause of Christ or in general. Being in danger continually, dying by the sword. And yet none of these things, no matter how much pressure comes upon the people of God, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God. And that's the, the assurance that we have. You look at all through the centuries of the people of God who died who were thrown to the wild beast or used as a, as a human torch to light the, land, uh, light the gardens of Nero or whatever. The Marian martyrs who were burned at the stake and so many others. And they went to their deaths with, with continued love for Christ, continued praise for Christ. Even in the moments in which they are dying and burning up, they're lifting their hands towards the heaven and praising God, singing the Psalms, all these other kinds of things that they did. How could they do that with such pressure and such torture and such distress, such mental anguish? Because they are forever secured in the hand of God and nothing can separate them from the love of God. And that's the point. You can't separate yourself from the love of God. There is nothing that will make you ever turn your back on him. 
And there is nothing that will ever make him turn his back on you because he is for you. And he has demonstrated that so many times that we've read throughout the scriptures in eternity past, in the, in the giving of the Son, in the times in which he has called you in the present, the things that he has done for you continually in your life. He has shown you that he loves you and that he is for you. None of these things. And these are things that Paul himself is enduring. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. This is quoting from the Psalms. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep are defenseless. At any moment someone could have come by perhaps. A crowd gets stirred up. Kill them. Beat them. Throw them in jail. A number of these things had happened to the disciples, the apostles. And yet they were firm. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And even in view of all of those things, of all the pains of life, he says in verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? All the terrible things that maybe you've endured in your life and the pains that we've endured in our life for various reasons and various circumstances. And yet he says we overwhelmingly conquer. That means to overpower in victory, to be abundantly victorious, to prevail mightily in all these things. Why? Because in all these things, God is working all things together for good. He is growing you. He is nurturing your faith. He is conforming you to the image of Christ, his son. And even in death, even in death, the greatest good is being given to you. And that you get to go home to be with the Lord. Because Christ is victorious over death, over his enemies. He has allowed us to be, to partake in that victory. Because he promises us that where he is, there we will be also. We overwhelmingly conquer. Even in the times of pain that we endure now, do you know and do you reflect upon this truth that the time in which you're living right now is the shortest span of your existence because forever comes after. So if, the, if at this present time that we suffer, that we endure pain, and we will, afterward, God wipes away every tear. And just as that song, Though You Slay Me, you know, when we get to heaven, and it's talking about when we get to heaven, we'll realize that every tear was worth it all. Because the apostle has already told us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Nothing can separate you. When we're looking at this passage, this is 
a passage that is emphasizing over and over and over again, covering every part of life to have you to understand, you will never be lost. You are his. You are his possession. You are his treasured possession. Christ has died for you. Christ was raised for you. Christ is ascended and seated at the right hand of God for you. Christ is pleading your cause continually. You have the Spirit of God who intercedes for you here on earth, bringing you along, giving you what is needed, nurturing your faith, conforming you to the image of Christ, giving you endurance throughout your times of of distress and bringing all things together for good. You are secured. Do you consider what would have to happen As we've talked about before, what would have to happen for you to be lost again? Remember we talked about the nine particular specific blessings that come to the people of God. Every person who is in Christ has received these gifts from God. You've been effectually called, regenerated, converted, justified, adopted, sanctified, you persevere in the faith, you're united to Christ, you will be glorified. And your glorification is spoken of in the past as if it's a done deal. So what would have to happen then? Well, I promised you that I would glorify you, but i got to take that back now. I promised that uh, you would persevere because you would be preserved in my hand. Well, you did a little too much and you jumped out of my hand, so now I can't preserve you anymore. You were united to my son, but now we're going to have to sever that relationship. Oh, I adopted you, yes, into my family, but now I'm going to have to unadopt you because you committed too much sin. And yes, I justified you, but you're guilty again. So I have to take back my verdict, place you under the guilt of sin once again. And yes, I granted you faith that you can call upon Christ, but now I'm going to remove that ability again and place you back in to your trespasses and sins so that you're dead once again. The Spirit is being taken from you, so no longer are you regenerated, no longer are you born again. Now you're the natural man again. And now I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to effectually call you. These are the things that would have to happen if you could lose your salvation. But the promise is, even if you go to John 3.16, what is the promise? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Right? That's the promise. Whosoever believes will not perish. It doesn't say, will not, as long as you continue to do well, you will not perish. The promise is, you will not perish. All who behold the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life. It's a promise. And if God has fulfilled the ultimate promise by sending the Son, any other promise is lesser than that, and He will bring it to pass. You believe, He will secure you. And He will forever secure you by the Spirit of God. Why do you doubt, dear Christian? Why do you doubt God's love? Why do you doubt whether or not if you're in the faith? Here's the question. Where is your assurance lying? In your performance? Or in another? Your assurance isn't in you. 
or your work, how well you do, it's in another. And because of him, dear Christian, you can have the full assurance of your salvation. And God has granted that to us. What a wonderful God we serve. He isn't the kind of God that receives us, lets us go again. He's the kind of God that says, you're mine, and you're coming with me. You know, when you think of that, that whole idea, I believe it was Wayne who had said to me one time, he said, you know, which is a more loving God? A kind of God that stands in your yard with a sign saying, choose me, choose me, and a God who, who if you do uh, too much, will abandon you. Or the God who comes to your front door and says, you're mine, and you're coming with me. And you will never be lost. Which is a more loving God? Thank God that he's not like us. We serve a mighty God. What he promises, he will bring to pass. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that indeed we will never be lost. For you preserve us in your hand. You know all things. You knew the things that we would do even even after we believed upon Christ. And yet you still called us. And you still gave us the assurance that our sins are forgiven. Christ was raised from the dead, implying that you accepted his sacrifice on behalf of those whom you had given him. Thank you, Father, that it's not dependent upon us, but all him. He lived the life that you, that you required. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law perfectly. He endured your wrath. And he satisfied your justice. Thank you, Father, for his work. And I pray that if anyone here does not know you, that doesn't know the love of God, Pray that today, Father, you would draw them to yourself, grant them faith to call upon Christ, believing that he lived for them, that he died for them, that he rose again, that they may have the promise of eternal life in him. Father, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the joy that it brings our hearts. May you be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.